Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. As always, great to have you with us for an hour of deliberation as we discuss the Moscow Summit summation. Fresh French pension agitation and J-PAL rate decision preparation. Lots to come. China's President Xi departing Moscow after three days of high-level talks with his Russian counterpart. Long walks, firm handshakes, fast friends it seems, but no verbal support for Putin's war in Ukraine, nor outright commitment to provide lethal arms to Russia. A late report ahead from Moscow. Also, President Emmanuel Macron on TV this past hour trying to calm nerves after sidelining Parliament and enacting deeply unpopular pension reforms. Opponents say we won't give up. The latest coming up on that. And the Fed Chair Jay Powell facing arguably the most challenging test of his tenure later today. The U.S. Central Bank deciding whether to raise interest rates today as planned and how much more to say about what's still required. The so-called dot plots of future interest rate moves will especially be key. Now, Powell has the tools to fight both inflation and tackle banking stress. But of course, communicating that with confidence is crucial. Stock markets have steadied, though, in the meantime this week. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says depositors will get more protections if needed. But the banking uncertainty has not yet passed. Let's take a look at U.S. futures and European stocks. A cautious feel, as you would expect, as we await the Fed potential fireworks and fresh U.K. data highlighting that the fire still burns. An inflation U-turn there, rising to almost 10.5% last month. As former New York Fed President Bill Dudley told the show yesterday, the Fed's big job today is don't make the financial uncertainty worse. Do no harm. The central bank has pumped billions of dollars back into the system to stop a financial freeze, which would effectively give it cover to hike interest rates. But how much more does the economy really need when you consider the economic blow taken in the last two weeks? Let's get more on all of this. Rahel Solomon has all the answers for us, I know. (laughs) Rahel, what do we think he does today? Well, Julia, I think there's a question of what we expect and this debate about what they should do. So what they Mm. expect, and you can see here just from CME, that traders are largely pricing in another rate hike of a quarter of 1%, uh, 15% believing that we may actually see a pause. Now, that is the expectation, and I think we can pull it up for you here. But then the question in this debate about what they should do in this really critical moment, and the argument on one side that they should raise rates by another quarter of 1%, because in doing so, it signals that not only do they remain focused on fighting inflation, but that perhaps what we're seeing with the banks isn't as bad as it seems. On the other hand, you have some who believe that a pause here would be an about face and could really spook markets. Consider for one moment what the chief economist of Goldman Sachs, Jan Hatzi, has said in a note earlier this week saying, 
It doesn't make sense to tighten monetary policy amidst ongoing stress in the banking system that could present substantial downside risk to the economy. And what he's getting at here, Julia, is what you were alluding to there, that we are already going to see an economic impact as a result of the banking stress. Goldman Sachs suggesting that the pullback that we see in tightening because of this concern among banks who now feel like, well, maybe we should be a bit more liquid. Maybe we should be a bit more nimble in preparation for any potential bank runs that may come. That's going to cause a pullback in lending, right? And so that is already going to have an economic impact. Uh, Goldman Sachs suggesting that that could have an impact of the equivalent of essentially another rate hike of a quarter to half a percent. So it will do some of the job for it. But Julia, as you know, monetary policy is famously a blunt tool. And I'm not sure how enthused the Federal Reserve would be about solving this inflation issue through the banks, through this stress, because I would argue that could be even messier in terms of not knowing how damaging that impact could be and the spillover effect of that. Yeah, I mean, you raised so many great points. Them In the end, all this comes down to is, is messaging. The message mm. that's received as a result of the decision that they take on interest rates. And I think you also raised a crucial point about the fact that they have the tools. They have the tools to do different things. They can protect the banks with certain measures. We've seen it Mm. with the provision of loans. They can also tackle inflation with rate hikes. The problem is, do people take fright based on those choices? And you know what's so interesting, Julie, that messaging and that communication, as you know, the Federal Reserve, FedSpeak can be notoriously vague, can be notoriously ambiguous. And you can certainly argue that there is a reason for that. At least they believe that there is a reason for that. You know, I would argue now is not the time for ambiguity, right? Now is not the time for vagueness in terms of messaging. I think markets and investors want to hear a clear message in terms of what the Federal Reserve is willing to do in terms of resolving these banks, but also its resolve in terms of inflation. And so we might hear from the Fed a bit more clarity, a bit more pointed messaging than perhaps we've heard in the past because of this reason. There was already so much uncertainty in the market. We don't need any more uncertainty from Chairman Powell. Yes, we've ended where we started. Do no harm. Rahel Solomon, thank you for that. We'll see. Okay, to Ukraine now and images of an apparent missile strike in Zaporizhia. You're about to see video of the moment a missile struck a residential building and the scale already of the damage, I think, pretty evident. This is President Zelensky made a surprise visit to the front lines in the Donetsk region. You can see him shaking hands with soldiers there. For all the latest, Ivan Watson has this from Kharkiv. Ukrainian authorities say at least two Russian missiles slammed into apartment buildings in the southern Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia. This attack taking place on a, on a bright sunlit day in late winter, which is kind of deceptively beautiful when you consider the deadly hazards of the conflict that are taking place now. Now, the search and rescue teams were on the scene. These were two nine-story apartment buildings. The acting mayor of the city says at least one person has been killed. Dozens of people uh, hospitalized, uh, fire department on the scene trying to put out the fires. At least two children injured in this attack that has been condemned by the Ukrainian authorities as a war crime, as they put it, committed by vile Russian terrorists. Uh, This attack taking place uh, the day after the Russian and Chinese leaders, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, were embracing each other in Moscow after two days of meetings, where they uh, declared to the world that they want to create a more just, more democratic, multipolar international order. 
within hours of those declarations and the, the, the deep declarations of friendship between these two leaders, the Ukrainian authorities say the Russian military fired multiple deadly missiles and drones at different Ukrainian cities and towns. Uh, missiles fired by Russian warplanes at the southern port city of Odessa, where air defenses succeeded in knocking down at least two of those missiles, but more got through, causing damage to a three-story building, wounding people. And then the Ukrainian Air Force say from the north of Ukraine, at least 21 of these Iranian-made Shahid drones were fired at Ukraine that some 16 were knocked down by air defenses, but at least four people were killed in a city outside of Kiev, uh, in the town of Zhitomer. In that region, several of those drones were knocked down. The Russians say that there were some kind of drone attacks on the Russian-occupied city of Sevastopol in uh, the Crimean Peninsula. All of this air war, which uh, kills and maims civilians, innocent civilians, is taking place as the two militaries continue bludgeoning each other, killing each other in trench and artillery warfare on the very long front lines. Ivan Watson, CNN, Kharkiv. Now, that missile strike that Ivan was describing coming just hours after Chinese leader Xi Jinping wrapped up his state visit to Moscow. She concluded what Beijing called a, quote, journey of friendship after holding talks with Vladimir Putin at the Kremlin. Now, during his goodbye handshaking, you were just seeing that earlier, too. She reiterated his view that global power is shifting from the West to China, saying, quote, together, we should push forward these changes that have not happened for 100 years. Matthew Chance joins us now from Moscow. Matthew, great to have you with us. If the ambition was to display the friendship, the growing alliance with China, and perhaps also ruffle some feathers in the West, then one could argue it was a success. But what about deliverables like receiving weaponry or even verbal support for Russia's so-called special military operation in Ukraine? I didn't hear any of that. Well, there certainly wasn't that full-throated support for the invasion of Ukraine. In fact, China's been pushing its own peace plan uh, for Ukraine, and, 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 and that's one of the things that was discussed. Um, and you're right, there was no public um, announcement that there would be military support for, for Russia in terms of weapons and, and ammunition uh, being delivered to Russia so it can push forward on, on the front line. Um, and that's probably because that's a red line at the moment that China is not prepared to, cro to cross, although we don't know what was discussed behind closed doors. And the vast majority of this meeting uh, took place in private. But you know, deliverables, well, there, were, there was quite a lot, actually, in the sense that you know, more than a dozen deals were signed between Russia and China uh, on projects to either physically or economically connect the two countries, bridges, pipelines, things like that. They discussed a new pipeline um, to carry gas between uh, Russia and China, which really reorientates even more uh, uh, Russia's economy towards the east, towards uh, China. And of course, the very fact that Xi Jinping was here uh, having a face-to-face -face meeting again, and they've met each other more than, more than 40 times, him and Putin, w was, was a symbolic uh, gesture, a symbolic show of support for Vladimir Putin. You know, it was just a couple of days, remember, after Putin was indicted at the... Um, at the International Criminal Court in The Hague for, for war crimes. And so it was really important symbolically for Russia to have Xi Jinping literally uh, standing at Vladimir Putin's shoulder. Yes, the, the, his presence there, I think, speaks volumes. Um, you also, and it was your reporting, Matthew, that got a suggestion that perhaps preparations were being made behind the scenes over in Ukraine for a conversation between President Xi and, and President Zelensky. 
what more do we know about that? And how optimistic on the Ukrainian side officials are having watched this three-day display, let's call it that? Well, we, we know that um, from Ukrainian officials that discussions have been underway uh, to arrange a call between President Zelensky of Ukraine and Xi Jinping of China. It would be the first time they'd ever spoken. You know, and that compares very unfavorably with, the, uh, with what I just mentioned, the fact that Xi and Putin have met more than 40 times. Um, but those discussions haven't gone anywhere yet. Uh, I understand they're still ongoing, but there's nothing concrete that's been uh, scheduled. Now, in terms of, uh, you know, what the expectation is in Ukraine, well, I mean, the, the peace plan that China has put out there, which has got 12 points, calling for talks uh, between the two countries, Russia and China, uh, and also, but, you know, but stopping short of calling on Russia to withdraw from territory it's already conquered, you know, that, that's, that's not going to be acceptable, as far as we're aware, from the Ukrainian point of view. You know, a, a territorial withdrawal um, is a key demand uh, for for Kiev, and, and they've stated again and again that they wouldn't be prepared to um, negotiate a ceasefire until such times as uh, at least that term ha has been fulfilled. Mm. Matthew Chance, great to have you with us. Thank you. French President Emmanuel Macron defending controversial legislation to raise the country's retirement age to 64. In an interview on French television earlier Wednesday, President Macron called the reform necessary and said the bill should be enacted by the end of the year. The interview comes after another night of protests. Sam Kiley joins us on this. Sam, so even in the face of pressure from the people, and we know this is highly unpopular, the French president saying, I'm not backing down. Yeah, he also said in the, quite strikingly in that interview, Julia, that he didn't want to have to do it, but that it was an economic reality that it should be done so. And his government has now been arguing for some time that, for example, by 2017, on the pension uh, funds themselves, there'll be a 12.5 billion euro, similar figure in dollars deficit. Uh, and he says that these reforms, just raising the pensionable age for most people to 64 uh, from 62 would mean that by the end of the decade it would be possible to balance the pension budget. Now he also said that he understood why there was anger about this, uh, that he endorsed the political right of people to protest, particularly through the unions and strike uh, and uh, have uh, the uh, marches that have been characteristic of so much of the demonstrations that have been going on now for close to a month since mid-January, or longer than a month rather. Um, but he was very, very angry, in a sense, about the violence of these spontaneous street marches that have been springing up, particularly here in Paris. I have to say that the demonstrations last night were markedly lower key than they had been on previous nights. They're not enormous numbers, four to 6,000 at a peak on last Thursday, Friday, when this constitutional uh, finesse was used by the government to force through the legislation against what they feared in the government would be a, a no vote for these reforms. And of course, his government then on Monday survived two attempts to unseat it through no confidence vote. So he added to that, uh, Julia, that he expected by the end of this year that this new legislation will be enacted and that the reforms would go ahead. The only thing that could stop them constitutionally at the moment is uh, either the government backing down, which he's made absolutely clear is not going to happen, or if it fell foul of the Constitutional Council, which is currently examining the legislation. There's no real sense that uh, it would do so, though, Julia. Yeah. 
I mean, these are really tough decisions. But I do think, to your point, bringing it back to the economics and saying the numbers simply mm. don't work. And, and these are tough choices that we have to make. Um, mm. Sam, great to have you with us. Thank you. Sam Crowley there. And now time for TikTok. The CEO of TikTok set to testify before Congress as he fights to avoid a full ban of the app in the United States. Ahead of Thursday's hearing, Xu Chu said in written testimony that the company has never shared user data with the Chinese government, nor would it. TikTok now boasts more than 150 million users in the United States, according to the CEO, who says banning it would hurt many Americans. He's testifying in front of Congress tomorrow. Now straight ahead, a high-wire balancing act for the Fed as it looks to tame inflation without adding to further stress in the banking system. We'll discuss with the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers. Next. Welcome back. It's decision day once again for the Federal Reserve as it weighs its next move on interest rates amid a banking crisis and stubborn inflation. Do they go bold like the European Central Bank or do they take a more modest approach with a quarter point hike or no hike at all? There's also the camp of people calling for policymakers to take that time out. What is clear is the Fed's job is not yet done. The U.S. economy has performed strongly since the central bank's last meeting. But of course, then banking turmoil has added further pressure to that decision. Jason Furman joins us now. He is a former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers and currently an economic policy professor at Harvard. Professor Furman, Jason, fantastic to have you on the show. Is the best move from the Federal Reserve today to do what the market expects and not make a surprise? Look, I think the best move is 25 basis points. Mm. I think that's what they will do. Had it not been for the banking turmoil, it would have been an open and shut case for 50 basis points. But the banking turmoil is a little bit contractionary. They should almost count that as one of the hikes. Um, so they only really need to do one quarter point hike now. Just one hike. And remember, compared to the Europeans, uh, the Fed is ahead. Uh, interest rates are a lot higher here already. Um, we probably maybe only have another percentage point to go on the Fed funds rate. I think some investors are betting that we won't even need to raise it um, that much. So, you know, a quarter point, I think, is enough to show they're serious about inflation. That is their primary mandate. They have other tools for financial stability. In fact, we can't have financial stability if they don't get inflation under control. Yeah, my, my one hike there on the quarter point was um, equating this economic damage that we've seen as a result of the, of the banking volatility to just a quarter of a point hike, which we'll come back to. Because um, you raise another important point there, and I want to pick up on that. Um, what about what we saw from the European Central Bank, where they said, look, we're going to do this, but we're going to be hands off now. And we actually don't know what comes next because we have to watch the data and get a get an understanding and effective removing of the guidance. Do you think we see some kind of explanation like that from Jay Powell just to say, look, um, we don't know from here. We know we've still got an inflation problem, but we don't know about the banks. We've done our best for now. We'll see how it goes. I certainly hope we see that and I expect to see that. And, you know, every other meeting they put out their dots where they tell you what they think interest rates will be for the rest of the year. My guess is some of them are wishing that they had never let that genie out of the bottle because those dots today are, you know, what they think interest rates will be nine months from now. 
they have no idea, none of them have any idea, and it's not their fault, about how this banking turmoil will play out, how it will affect the economy, where they're going to need to move interest rates. So I think they're going to really need to distance themselves from their forecast and be even more data dependent than they normally are. Yeah, I mean, I was reading your last op-ed, which was and what feels like 10,000 years ago, but it was actually on the 2nd of March, which is 20 days ago. And you were pointing out that if the underlying trend of data was accurate, judging by the January jobs increase, which we know was um, several hundreds of thousands of job net gains, a 14% increase in inflation-adjusted consumption spending, 7% annualised core inflation, then the Fed should be raising rates by two and a half percentage points, not the half a percentage point that we were talking about back then. It gives you a sense of the strength that we were talking about in the economy two weeks ago and the degree of uncertainty today. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, it is still the case that the U.S. economy is just awash in demand. Inflation is running at about a four and a half percent rate. That has not slowed underlying inflation. That has not slowed in the last nine months to a year. Job growth is well above normal. The economy in the first quarter is looked to set to grow maybe two, three percent above its potential. And so we need to bring demand down. What we don't know is will the banking turmoil be enough to bring demand down? Now, we don't want to bring demand down through a financial crisis. That would be a terrible way um, to reduce demand. But can we sort of titrate it? Can the Fed titrate it in the way they'd like to? Um, That's going to be very hard to do. And the only way they might have a prayer of doing it is if they are very attentive to the data, financial and macro, as the year evolves. Yeah. And as you point out, they do have different tools. They have the ability to hike rates to try and control inflation. They also have the tools like we've seen with the lending facilities at the the Federal Reserve to be able to try and tackle some of the instability in in the banking sector, too. Um, What is crucial, particularly to lending in smaller regions are the community banks, the small and medium-sized banks that we've seen as sort of the proxy for the broader pressure that we've seen in the in the banking sector in the United States. Do you have any sense of what happens when you see these deposit outflows in these banks? To what extent that then means that they restrict lending? So if a bank comes out and we've seen PacWest, which is one particular bank, provide a statement saying they've lost 20% of their, their deposits. Um, Vitally important to understand what the impact of that is on future lending, just to get a sense of the economic impact, to go back to where the conversation began. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we don't know. Um, There have been some deposits flowing back in, um, as there is increasingly understood that if there needed to be a guarantee, there would be a guarantee. Um, Even if deposits haven't flowed out of your bank, um, you're going to have to have your CEO, your board, your supervisors all sort of trying to pull back, figure out how they can conserve capital. Um, But on the other hand, this is still sort of a surprisingly regional issue. This is mostly California, a bit New York, um, obviously spread to Switzerland, but it didn't spread very much to much of the rest of the United States. And so, you know, we'll have to see, um, you know, if that happens as well. You know, some estimates out there are really aggressive suggesting that what we've seen and the spillover effects, even if I think this sort of wraps up to your point about it being very specific and regional for the most part, um, it could equate to one and a half percentage points of hikes 
versus something much smaller. Jason, can you can you imagine that, or do you think we had yeah. um, Bill Dudley on yesterday Look, saying I, he thinks around half a percent? Yeah, I think half is probably the best guess. I think it could be anywhere from twenty five to 150 basis points. Um, So when I said before, I didn't mean it was only 25. I meant it sort of counts for one of the hikes. I had previously thought the terminal rate needed to be about six. Today, if I see in the dots, five and a half for the terminal rate, which is a little bit higher than where they were before, but probably lower than what Jay Powell was signaling um, two weeks ago. I'd like to see some number like that, a recognition that this counts towards some of the hikes, but it doesn't fully supplant them and take care of the issue on its own. Because look, I'm worried that a week ago, the market was just sort of in full, the Fed's going to cut interest rates mode. I didn't think the Fed was going to cut rates. And when those disconnects emerge, um, that can be a scary thing and an accident waiting to happen. So I think the Fed needs to make it clear, you know, we're going to still be raising rates, be prepared, take the steps you need to, so you don't run into a problem if that happens. Yeah, because, I mean, investors are still pricing cuts in the second half of this year. Um, Jason, that goes to my final question. What's the worst thing that, that Jay Powell could communicate today? Is it that, that he actually doesn't knock out some of that expectation of future rate cuts? Yeah, I think if he makes the market overly optimistic about future rate cuts, that would be the biggest problem. By the way, there's a chance they'll need to cut rates. If the data says that, they should do that. But much better to you know, have the market be prepared for the worst rather than be building itself on hoping for the best because that hoping for the best strategy and planning for the best has just not worked out over the last two years. So he needs to continue that serious message that this is going to be tough this is going to be long. They're going to stay with it. And their primary mandate at this point is to bring inflation down. Yeah, that was a great quote. Too many analysts have focused on what is possible for the economy rather than what is probable. Get real moment. That was another quote from your op-ed. I liked it. Jason Furman, thank, thank you, you so much. The former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Great to chat to you. And currently an economic professor at Harvard. Great to chat, sir. All right, coming up after the break, fighting fossil fuel polluters, the young climate activist who's made it onto the Times list of women of the year. She'll be here to tell her incredible story and explain her ongoing fight. Welcome back to First Move with investors about to receive crucial insight into how the U.S. central bank views the recent turmoil in global banking. U.S. stocks opening little changed. I think that's pretty expected as we await the Fed's latest interest rate decision and the Fed chair Jay Powell's news conference, of course, key. The Fed statement set to be released in around four and a half hours time. Also today, a pullback in shares of regional bank PacWest. Reports within the past hour saying it's seen recent deposit outflows of some 20%, as we were just discussing. It's also drawing on an almost $1.5 billion cash injection from the firm Atlas Partners. We'll continue to watch that name, as you can see, the share price lower this morning pre-market. Oh, no, the market's just open (laughs) in trade. Okay, from Greta Thunberg at Davos to the opponents of oil drilling in Alaska on TikTok. Young people are fighting to be heard in campaigns to protect the planet and also fight against the fossil fuel industry. My next guest is a member of the United Nations Secretary General's Youth Advisory Group. 
The 24-year-old in question is also a co-founder of Polluters Out, whose aim is to drive the fossil fuel business out of every aspect of society. And it's earned her a place on the cover of Time magazine. Take a look at that. After her uncompromising poem targeting polluters delivered at COP27 went viral. Here's a taster. I tell you that there has been a massacre. And the land will never be the same. The soil will never grow the same. The hum of mosquitoes has changed the color of the sky. And the sickness of your greed will haunt you in every single lifetime. And Aisha Sadiqa joins us now. Aisha, wow. That, that was a moment. I remember watching that and, and you gave me goosebumps, which I hope you had that impact on everyone. Um, just talk about that moment, but also what it was like to hear you were going to be on the front cover of, of Time magazine, because that's a wow moment, too. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to be on the cover. Um, ah. It was a surprise. But uh, back to the speech, the speech was delivered at the very last day on the very last day of negotiations. And um, it was actually at a press conference. I had my notes prepared. I was supposed to go in and talk very uh, pragmatically about very specific policy asks. And uh, earlier that day, uh, my country had a Pakistan experience flooding three months in advance. But earlier that day, the, politi- the political tensions, the things that we were very scared about, the, the things that we... I was predicting and I was being asked, where is the data to support this began happening. Um, uh, uh, grain is so expensive in Pakistan right now. Tomatoes are so expensive, so much so that people have begun having like fights at grocery stores. Inflation is on the rise and, and the, the, the inter personal relationships of people in my personal community have gotten so um, difficult because of the, economic crisis so um earlier that day i received uh, a message from my my family that like we can't afford food and uh, i had written this poem prior to actually the gen the um the meeting of the UNGA in new york around september and i ditched my notes and i read this instead and next to me on the panel was former um prime minister of ireland uh, mary um, uh, Robinson and uh, Vanessa Nakate. And I think and I hope that the poem was heard by the audience I wanted it to be heard, which, which, which are government officials and heads of state. I think what's clear, uh, having watched that video of you speaking, but also hearing you talk now, is that this is not just an ordinary passion project for you. This is about your life. It's about your family's life and and your fundamental belief that you've lost family members as a result of illness tied to pollution, tied to climate change. This truly is about life and death to you. And that's why you fight so hard. Yeah. And it's not just uh, life and death to me. It's life and death of every single human being on planet Earth. You know, humans, if you... If you want to know how bad we are treating planet Earth, take a look at the illnesses that are arising inside of people. Uh, what we eat, uh, the air we consume, the water we drink, it is, uh, and, and how that affects us 
uh, internally is a obvious experiment of how we are polluting the earth because we consume right from it. And my family in particular, when you come from a remote area in a, uh, in a place of the world that um, is, is not necessarily exposed to the same uh, kind of um, processed food like, like we have in, in the United States, when, when you live off the land, um, uh-oh. Can you hear me still? still? You. We've still got you. Yeah, okay. keep going. Um, you've disappeared for me, so I'm going to keep going. Anyway, um, and you haven't, and, and that kind of community relies on the grain that you grow with your own hands, the cattle that you feed with your own hands, and the water you get from, uh, from the river with your own hands, and you have been fine. In fact, you've been thriving. In fact, the life quality in where you live is around uh, 60 to, to 100 years old, and then suddenly, in the course of 10 years, one illness after another, cancers that we had never seen before, um, uh, experiences of malaria and dengue that we had not experienced before, things like appendicitis and polio just thriving here in a particular part of the world that has been imbued to all of this. The only explanation is our, our food systems, our access to clean water and our, 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 and our air were affected. And so um, my family experienced it, but this is also the reality of so many rural communities in Pakistan and yeah. in South Asia in general, unless it's just arising. And technology is moving on as well to enable us to identify it, but so should it be able to um, to help address some of these things. Um, Aisha, you caught my attention with the founding of Polluters Out, which I know one of the primary focuses of this is to get the UNFCCC to implement a conflict of interest policy because you're concerned, and I know there's many of you out there too that are concerned about vested interest, about business interests, particularly in the fossil fuel industry that's holding progress back. Um, talk to me about the Willow Project, because this is another area where I know you've commented, and this is about drilling in Alaska, yes. and there was debate over whether it would go ahead or not. President Biden recently decided to allow it to go ahead in the Biden administration, and there's been a real pushback, particularly from young people on social media talking about this. Do you have a message for, for President Biden, for the Biden administration on this? I mean, the Intergovernmental Panel released its last report yesterday. And if it makes anything clear, now this is the world's leading expert scientists on climate and environment and health and Inter, uh, intergenerational equity, they are saying we cannot, cannot release any more carbon in the atmosphere if we want to stay below two degrees of warming. 1.5 is out of the window at this point. And um, polluters out, it's not just about corporations and it's not just about like their influence. At the UNFCCC level, where governments are literally getting together to solve the, the issue of climate, do you know that the words oil and gas are not even mentioned in any of the texts, let alone Paris Agreement? They're not even in the cover decision. So if we can't, uh, wordly pinpoint what is leading us to the end of possibly extensions of so many people that how are we going to get to a, any sort of solution? The Willow Project is expected to produce as much carbon as running 76 coal 
plans. Uh, 30 million people and scientists have warned that this will be a, a threat to the people of the United States. It's going to be the largest gas and oil project on U.S. soil. It will affect the Arctic. It will pollute the water, the air, and it will disrupt lives of 239 million uh, it will it will disrupt a lot, 100 million people, but it will um, cause 239 million metric tons of global greenhouse gas emissions to be released. And and if uh, if any sort of uh, what I say today is um, touching the hearts of anybody, it's my family's lives were directly affected because of the coal dams and the water pollution. And once once that happens, and once everything that you know starts falling apart, then this is not just an issue of um, some people in the global south. It becomes everybody's problem. Mm. So I have about 30 seconds left on the show. So I guess your message to President Biden would be, please stop. Please listen and please stop. My, my message to President Biden is like, not just please stop, but you are actively... Um, not only putting everybody else at risk, you're setting yourself on fire. This is this is uh, my way, and take everybody else with me, and and that's completely unacceptable. Aisha, come back on the show. We'll continue this discussion. Great to have you with us, and congratulations once again. Keep up the fight. Thank okay, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Marketplace Europe is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.